Welcome to Talking New Energy, a podcast from Delta EE, the new energy experts. We'll be talking about how the energy transition is developing across Europe, with guests who are working at the leading edge of this transition. Hello and welcome to the episode. Today we're talking about the energy crisis that is hitting much of Europe. Huge increases in wholesale gas prices have fed through to Uh, drive similar increases in electricity prices across much of Europe. Energy has hit the headlines a few weeks ago and stays in the headlines today in the mainstream media. Customers are struggling with higher bills. And in some countries, energy retailers are struggling and going bust as regulation means they can't pass on all those costly customers. The media and public have demanded action, but there's little that governments can do apart from some short-term handouts. So today we're exploring what all this means for the energy transition. Will it speed it up or slow it down? Could good come out of the crisis? And there's a famous saying, never let a crisis go to waste. Well, how could the energy sector react to this crisis to help accelerate the energy transition? We've identified four ways that good could come out of the current crisis. And I'm going to run through those four now and then discuss them with my colleague, Jeremy Harrison from Delta EE. We were meant to have a slightly larger and more diverse group than Jeremy and myself, uh, but unfortunately illness has got the better of that. So uh, I'll introduce the four and then Jeremy and I will uh, pick them apart a bit. So point one of four, current energy markets are not fit for a decentralized, very efficient, low carbon future. So the current retail energy markets are not fit for purpose for the future. Point two, we need to transform how the energy sector engages with customers. Point three, we need to empower smart energy communities. So communities working with local renewable generation integrated with provision of supply and services. And four, we urgently need much more demand management and flexibility. So the four points, retail markets not fit for purpose, transform how we engage with customers, empower smart communities, and urgently increase demand management and flexibility. Jeremy, hello, how are you doing? Hi, John. Good, thank you. Um, um, which of those four would you like to, to start with or how, how, how would you like to get the discussion going? I think... I'd start probably with the, the smart communities. Um, historically, the energy system has been predicated on a top-down approach where there are large central generators who feed the power down through the transmission distribution networks and the customers are just the end of the chain. And I think what we're beginning to see is the emergence of a top-up, uh, sorry, a bottom-up approach where energy communities um, invest in energy uh, generation of their own, whether it's solar PV or a local wind uh, turbine, for example. And I, and I think that what this crisis has, has revealed to many of us is the fact that even though we may have signed up for renewable energy tariffs, uh, we find ourselves quite confused when our bills go up by 30% because gas has gone up. Um, we thought yeah. we were buying renewable electricity. And, and yeah, of course... I've, I've, I've had that same conversation with friends, you know, we're on a green tariff. I thought we were buying wind energy. Yeah. Why Why have our bills gone up? And it's it's very difficult 
really difficult to explain to people, actually. Yeah, I mean, the energy market uh, is actually quite complex. And I think that the one way that people can overcome that is by connecting the local generation with the local demand. Whether it's me having a solar panel on the roof of my house, providing my electricity, I know where it's coming from. There's no intermediary. There cannot be any volatility. I've paid for my solar panel. That's where it's coming from. The problem with these kind of proxy systems where you are buying um, uh, some renewable generation or a certificate for renewable generation at some remote point, I, I think that people not only are confused, but I think they're quite annoyed that they thought they were investing in something. And it turns mm. out that, that they weren't. They were just buying electricity. And of course, everybody knows physics that you know, if you have a, a generator next door to you, that's where the power's coming from. It's not coming from a remote wind turbine. And that's where I think localization starts to become really important, where you can actually see where it's coming from. But how sceptics or cynics, Jeremy, might say, yeah, that sounds great in principle. Energy has hit the headlines today, but energy is such a low engagement sector. Can, are we really going to have significant numbers of communities where people club together, build their own local energy systems um, is that going to be a significant part of our energy future? It's a good point. I mean, we've done quite a bit of market research in, uh, I think, four or five uh, European countries where we, we asked those questions. You, we said to, I think, about 2,000 consumers, you, would they be prepared to invest in something like an energy community? Mm. Uh, we were actually pleasantly surprised by the number of people who said they would. Uh, and we follow that up by saying, uh, with, with a separate survey a year later, saying, okay, in, in theory, you might be prepared to do it, but how much would you be prepared to invest um, and what would you expect in return? And one of the models that seems to be emerging, I mean, there's two models. One is what we may call a virtual uh, energy community where you share resources. Maybe there's a group of uh, a 1,000 consumers and some of them have got PV on their roofs. There's maybe a CHP plant in a local mm -hmm. school and they all pool that and share it amongst themselves. Uh, and then the other one is where people actually build a, a an energy community physically. So they have their own central generation, central to their community, that is, and they can then trade that. And, and that becomes much more uh, a direct investment. You know, they know what they're investing in. Mm. And and when we and ask... It, it, them, Jeremy, it might not wholly be investment from people like you and me. It might be partial investment from individuals it might be some private sector investment as well it could be joint yeah. venture type models there's a whole yeah. range isn't there yeah, yeah absolutely and, and some of the models quite interestingly are where um third parties set up these energy communities on behalf of the, the individuals um and they provide the financing uh you know third party financing for the the assets and they then manage the energy communities and the, there's a few examples across europe where um, these sort of um what we might call energy community as a service companies uh, providing platforms to help people like you and me to actually participate without worrying about how we're going to build it or how we're going to do the billing and metering and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. So that's one area where we see a lot of opportunity and good may come out of this crisis, I guess, around the spurring on uh, local energy communities. But not every customer is going to be up for that. Um, so the the first point I mentioned about retail energy markets, very much today focused on selling units of energy up to the meter. And Jeremy, I know you're you're very passionate about how limited this competition is because what you're competing on is an 
everyone's encouraged to switch supplier, save 100 euros here, 50 euros there. But once you've got some saving, there's not, it's not really a long-term, uh, it's not no. going to, yeah. It's not, it's not sustainable, absolutely. And the idea of a competitive market where everybody is buying on the same wholesale market they're all paying the same use of system charges. They're all subject to the same compliance uh, costs and levies and taxes and so on. There's very little room for genuine competition. And um, when you then add into that things like the, the price cap in the UK, mm-hmm. it's a recipe for disaster. Effectively, yeah. you say you've got a competition, but your price is fixed. And it, it all comes back from the, the original uh, competitive market in what, 1989 in the UK and following on in other European countries, where... There was this top-down structure of the market, mm. and it sort of made sense at the time. Um, and there was there was fat in the system, and competition yes. has driven yeah. out some of that fat. Yeah. yeah. What I think is really interesting is uh, for those that like looking backwards rather than forwards. The first or Edison's power system in New York, I think it was uh, one mm. of the first power systems. He didn't sell units of energy or kilowatt hours. He sold lumens. He sold yeah. light. Yeah. And the opportunity there was people had very gas lamps. That's what they were used to. Electric lamps were new and expensive. There wasn't a market for them. So Edison packaged together the kilowatt hours and the actual lights to sell people lumens. And what I think is fascinating about that is that's ultimately what people still need today. They need light. They need heat. They need cooling. They need mobility. So there's a huge opportunity, I think, to focus on the services rather than the commodity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think that um, you know, what we're seeing in energy in general is a shift from uh, the, you know, if you take a typical home in, in, in most countries, in certainly Northwestern Europe, um, you know, more than three quarters of our energy use is for heating uh, and about another 10% for, for hot water. And very little was for electricity. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the value of the services provided by electricity are huge. If you think about the comparison of, uh, let's not do free advertising, but you know, watching Netflix, um, you know, the, the kilowatt hour price mm-hmm. for that is trivial compared to the subscription you're paying to access the service. So you're absolutely right. You know, the people want the service, not some um, uh, sort of arbitrary unit of um, energy, the kilowatt hour. And what I think now, why that's becoming even more important now is as we decarbonize transport and decarbonize heat and as distributed energy markets really grow, more people put solar panels on their roofs, batteries in their homes, then the provision of what people want, the ultimate services, depends on much more on more expensive assets in people's homes. So that's a huge opportunity to focus on providing those services and it might then unlock third-party investment in those expensive heat pumps, those expensive batteries and solar panels, etc. Yeah, and, and I think that's where some of these quite contentious issues around smart metering come in, that uh, for some reason there seems to be a sort of public aversion to uh, privacy issues on, on your electricity mm. consumption, which I've never really quite got. But if you allow... Um, the service providers to access your uh, usage patterns, be able to modify those, as you say, with things like heat pumps and so on, then actually, firstly, you can mitigate the the negative impacts of these new technologies like EV charging on the the networks, but you can actually create value. 
Yeah, an yeah. electric vehicle charge point can be a real problem if you have a lot of them uh, and the network is constrained. But likewise, they can also be a very valuable asset if you use them as mobile storage devices, uh, which can relieve pressure on the network mm. as well. So if you do it badly, you make a real mess of things. If you do it yeah. well, you can actually um, reduce costs rather than imposing additional costs. So I, I think of it as almost turning most people in the energy sector is thinking on its head it's starting with the customer in the middle and what the customer wants yeah. and then what are the best ways to provide those services to customers yeah. in the most efficient cleanest way yeah. um, and i think one thing about that is that it's not a one-size-fits-all so um, yeah. earlier we we're talking about the um you know the local generation and so on uh, and a lot of people are always thinking, well, that's all very well. If you live in the countryside, you can have a wind turbine. There's plenty of wind and nobody objects to it. You can't do that in a city centre. So first of all, the, the generation resources are probably more constrained in urban areas, but they'll also be different. Um, and the demands will also be different. You know, the yeah. kind of mobility challenges will be different. So uh, I think that, and I keep going back to the local thing, but there is this move starting to emerge where central government policy is being uh, not necessarily devolved, but certainly encouraged to be participating at the, um, the local community level. So municipalities take more of a role in developing plans that suit their communities, you know, yeah. the, their local resources and, and the demands that they have, rather than kind of the, the, the standard um, sort of cookie cutter approach. Well, that that brings us on to the third point. So let's just recap. We've talked about empowering smart energy communities. We've talked about current retail markets not being fit for a, a decentralized, highly efficient, low carbon future. The third point that takes us on to is transforming how the energy sector engages with customers. Um, and I think this applies not only to energy retailers, but to product manufacturers as well. Um, I don't think I'm being too controversial in saying the energy sector and many of the product manufacturers have not done a good job in engaging with customers, uh, mm. despite nearly 20 years of uh, deregulation in across much of Europe. Uh, so most customers are still hugely ill-informed and unengaged with energy. Some people say, well, that will always be the case. People don't care about it and they're not bothered. Um, but I believe actually that a lot of people do want to do the right thing by climate change. And now we've got this huge wave of data uh, available in many, many countries from smart meters and a huge opportunity to provide those personalized insights. Uh, so it's not just energy geeks like you and me, Jeremy, that might uh, take action, but um, we, the customers in general will have much more understanding about what they could do and what actions they could take. Uh, absolutely. And I, and I think that going back to your, you know, never let the crisis go to waste, um, you know, the silver lining of these very high, relatively high costs. I mean, I must say that energy generally is phenomenal value for the service it provides. Mm. But uh, one of the real problems historically has been the response whenever energy prices increase that the the regulators tended to say, well, just switch supplier, rather than saying, well, maybe think about how you can use less energy. What can oh. you do to improve the uh, efficiency of your home? And, um, you know... I heard an interview, Jeremy, with a, a Spanish uh, customer who 
and it was all about well how's the energy how's have the high energy prices affected you and the customer said well now we think about whether we need the lights on during the day or not and now we run our washing machine and dishwasher when electricity is cheaper and yeah. as you said that that's in a way exactly the yeah. reaction we want but we don't want a crisis to cause that reaction we want yeah. better engagement to cause that reaction well, sadly that's what we often need is a crisis to make us actually do anything you know mm. the, the energy efficiency agenda has been around since i was a, a little boy uh just quite a long time ago uh and um and, and i think yeah the, the frustration that people in the energy efficiency industry have always faced is when you say well why don't you invest in more insulation or whatever device well it's not worth it energy is so cheap why should i bother and the, the response of the regulator to say, well, just switch supplier. At last, we're now in a position where, you know, I'm getting all these emails now from my supplier, which has just gone bust, saying, um, don't bother trying to change suppliers. Nobody will have you. You know, mm. not only won't you get a better deal, nobody wants new customers because they're all uh, stuck in this having to sell cheaper than they're buying. So at last, people are being forced to think of something other than just shopping around. And, and so, to me, the really positive outcome of this could be that people really take energy efficiency seriously. Hopefully well, not to the extent that they can't afford to heat their homes, yeah. but to try and find a way of improving it. So maybe thinking about uh, some improved insulation, which might be a bit disruptive and might be more than they would have spent normally, but maybe it's now time to start thinking about things which are you know, not as obvious. Well, I think that's an opportunity for the energy sector to position or the forward-thinking companies to position themselves as providers of that insight advice, so empowering customers, engaging with customers, and helping customers to take action or taking action with customers together. Um, so that's the third point. And then the last point is that we urgently need more demand management and flexibility. So uh, many listeners or be in the business of flexibility, but um, the energy crisis that we've got at the moment, in some ways, is hard to deal with through flexibility because it's sustained over days and weeks, and we don't have that much flexibility in the energy system or in our homes or buildings yet. Um, but I think the energy, what we are seeing, is very, very spiky prices on markets, mm. and energy flexibility and demand management has got to be a a tool to deal with those. Yeah, and, and I think it goes further than that. It's There is the kind of day-to-day -day or minute-by-minute -minute, uh, levels of flexibility. But increasingly, as we become more dependent on electrification of heat, for example, then we're going to have interseasonal flexibility mm. requirements. You know, that um, if you look at a, a, a graph of the, the difference between gas supply in winter and summer uh, and in the UK, for example, where we're almost entirely dependent on 80 odd percent of our homes are heated with gas, then all we're doing in the summer is producing hot water. And in the winter, there's probably about four times the level of uh, heat demand that, as there is of electricity demand. So once we electrify that, there's going to be a huge need to, to have interseasonal storage so that we can store the electricity or manage some way of storing the energy from electricity uh, to provide heat in, in winter. And that, that is going to be a real challenge. And it's when you I, need then, sorry. Well, I think a bit about the parallels with the crisis in Texas. Um, some listeners may have remembered podcast we did on that, uh, on that crisis. And the knee-jerk reaction there was very much, well, let's invest in more power generation. Uh, 
Whereas actually a more nuanced uh, approach would have been, yeah, we need to do some of that, but we need to reduce demand in people's homes through efficiency. And we need to unlock all of that flexibility that people would have been prepared to offer if they'd been paid for that flexibility. Yeah, I mean, you're right. The, the, the Texas thing illustrates the fact that it doesn't matter how much uh, flexibility you have and how many price signals you have. If the, the resource isn't there, then it doesn't matter what you pay for it. You're not going to get yeah. it. Uh, and some people have argued that that is the Achilles heel of renewable uh, intermittent generation. Uh, to me, it's exactly the opposite. What it says is that rather than having less of it and therefore less volatility, you need more of it to give you uh, statistically uh, a higher level of um, generation. Um, and yes, you will still need some kind of, uh, some means of producing energy, whether that's storage or some other kind of generation when there are periods of prolonged low wind generation, for example. Um, and that could be through electrolysis with hydrogen to run um, peaking plants, for example. Um, but it can also be just a matter of um, having a diverse range of um, generation uh, supplies. So it's not just all one technology. No, I think it's a whole range of flexibility we need from smart charging of electric vehicles overnight yeah, exactly. and more and more companies linking tariffs, smart tariffs with automation of yes electric vehicle charging through to that interseasonal flexibility you mentioned, Jeremy. Um, and we are, I think, the energy sector in Europe is slowly moving forward with this, but I'm not sure it's urgently moving forward with this, which is what we need. Well, I mean, I, I would take a more positive view. It seems that um, there are certain parts of Europe um, and, uh, you know, if you look in Scotland, for example, the electricity supply is you know virtually 100% renewables now. So mm. by building enough uh, renewables, you do get to a point where you can meet uh, a large proportion of the, the total energy needs, not just electricity needs. Um, and I think that, as I say, it's been very encouraging in some areas. Well, thanks for keeping me positive and not too gloomy, Jeremy. <laughs> uh, so... That was the fourth point. We urgently need more demand management and flexibility. Now let's bring out the, the talking new energy crystal ball. And Jeremy, let's between us take each one of these. And if we set the crystal ball to 2026, five years time. Um, and the question that we'll look at is in 2026, to what degree will each of these takeaways be really gathering pace across Europe? And let's go for 10 out of 10, where it's fantastic progress, the fastest possible progress, and zero out of 10, where there's no progress at all. So maybe start with what you talked about first, empowering smart energy communities. Where would you put that on a, a zero to 10 scale in five years' time? Well, it's pretty well up on the hype scale at the moment. Um, but I think in terms of implementation, it's a very immature market. It's struggling to find its feet in terms of business models that actually stack up. Um, and I suspect that within the next five years, there will still be a very immature and fragmented market. So I would say maybe around the four or five level, if we're lucky. But beyond that, I think there's a tremendous scope. And there, there have been studies that indicate possibly half the current electricity demand from the residential sector can be met from residential generation. Now, there are a lot of caveats there, but certainly it's going to be significant, whether it's 50% or 30% or 40%. By 2050, it will be 
a significant, but it won't be exclusive. You'll yeah. still need the big energy spires there as well. Okay, so that getting going, but not transforming the sector in five years' time. Mm. Um, I'll take now transforming how the energy sector engages with customers. And I'm actually quite optimistic about this one because I see so many, well, yeah, so many companies and innovators starting to make good progress with this. Um, and I think as smart meter data becomes more available, as other data sources get blended with smart meter data, then this will really start to, to gather pace. So I'm going to give this an optimistic 7 out of 10. I think we've got a lot of work to do in the next five years to get there, but um, I'm going to go for 7 out of 10 on that one. Jeremy, would you like to take the uh, retail energy markets not being fit for a decentralized, highly efficient, low-carbon future? So the point we were discussing about yeah. services, not commodity. Yes, I mean, it's an interesting one, I think, but we've had 30 years of this business, competitive market business model, uh, and it has finally shown that it, it just is not fit for purpose. Um, so I think rather than just talking about it, there's going to be some pretty significant regulatory reform. There's going to have to be in the next year or so. Otherwise, you know, we'll have this sort of um, chaos mm. every every winter. So... I think that actually this is something which could change quite substantially over the next three or four years. Um, and so I would say, again, an optimistic seven or eight, because if it isn't, then, you know, things get really, really serious. I think there will be not fighting in the streets, but certainly a lot of discontent if we don't sort mm. that out. Okay. And then the last one is urgently needing more demand management and flexibility. And I'm actually going to give this a pessimistic nine out of ten and the reason it's pessimistic but nine is i think companies energy retailers that don't embrace flexibility will actually be out of the market as we move to settling on actual profiles and not standard low profiles it's a bit techy i won't unpack that now then i think uh energy retailers will need to be buying as little as possible at the expensive times in the market and helping to shape when their customers are using energy, often through automation. So if they're not doing that, I think they'll end up being too expensive and outcompeted. So I think in around five years' time, maybe a bit optimistic with five years, um, I'm going to give this nine out of ten because I think there'll be great commercial opportunities to, to do this. Which will actually link into point one as well, because if uh, the suppliers need to uh, engage with more flexibility to survive, then mm -hmm. the retail energy market will change. It will be transformed and we will move away from the uh, the standard settlement profiles, as you say, into uh, genuine time of use. So you'll be motivated to, um, yeah, to take your electricity when it's most effective for the system as a whole. And to do that to almost complete the circle you need to transform transform how you engage with customers and yeah. build that trust with customers uh okay well we've almost joined all four points up jeremy and uh we're overall more optimistic than pessimistic about the next five years which is nice when we step back and look at our scoring well it has to get better than it is at the moment doesn't it yeah so hopefully good can come out of the current crisis and while it's absolutely terrible that 
people are being pushed into fuel poverty, people are struggling to heat their homes. We need to tackle that urgently, but hopefully good can, can come out of this crisis. And I hope that's spurred some interesting thinking amongst everyone listening today. I hope you enjoyed the discussion and the podcast and look forward to welcoming you back to the next series. We're going to take a a couple of weeks break, but we'll look forward to uh, talking with you again soon. Thanks, everyone, and goodbye. If you're as passionate about the energy transition as we are, then please keep in touch. You can follow us and me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or subscribe to the podcasts on your chosen podcast platform. If you like the podcast and like sharing, then please do rate us. And to listen to archived episodes, to read transcripts, and to see the latest Delta EE insights, then please visit www.delta-ee.com. Thank you.